The Free For All Roundtable. Round two. On round two, Jason Agnew is here, News Talk 1010 personality, host of the trivia show on Sunday mornings. Kareem Assad is a Toronto lawyer and independent journalist. Patrick Brown is the mayor of Brampton. Let's actually start with the mayor. It's an opinion piece, yes, but interesting observations. Amatitle in the Toronto Star today says Olivia Chow has completely outsmarted Toronto's liberal MPs. Uh, Jason Agnew, let me start with you. This has been a story that has been on folding on News Talk 1010 all through the week with some pretty florid interviews. Yeah, no doubt, John. Uh, you've had great access with Yvonne Baker calling in and, you know, uh, going on record with this. And it's definitely caused a kerfuffle and it is making an impact. And it's really doesn't seem to be doing the federal liberals any favors here. OK, and Patrick Brown, certainly mayors have to sometimes play political games. But uh, do you have any observations on how Olivia Chow has played this? Yeah, I think it's a fair article. Um, you know, the reality on the ground is there's an asylum crisis, um, climate crisis in the country. The federal government has broadened the criteria, and we are now having more asylum claimants coming into cities with no funding. Um, and so she had to make some noise. Um, it, the response from the federal government for six months was crickets. When we started to raise this um, in the summer, I did so with Olivia Chow. Um, we had an asylum claimant die outside um, in in the cold weather in November. And the response of the federal government two weeks later was to come with funding for a thousand new shelter spaces. In Olivia Chow's case, I think she had to make some noise to really wake the federal government up that there was there was a crisis happening here. And so just like you're seeing the Quebec government making noise about this right now, I think Olivia Chow making noise about it is probably going to end up at some point with the federal government coming to the table and saying, how can we help? And so, yeah, I, I think she had to do this and, and, and good on her for making some noise for an issue that is really confronting Toronto. And Karim Asad, I've observed a few times since Olivia Chow came to power, which is only about six months ago, that she's a lot wilier than many people would have thought. Yeah, it. Uh, we, we see a lot of strategic maneuvers um, that, at least in the short term, right, the six months that she's been in power, um, have yielded results or movement toward results. Um, so, you know, that that's, uh, that's how politics is done, unfortunately. We'll learn more about this next story when we talk to somebody who was very personally affected by it, uh, the son of a woman who was allegedly put into a headlock in a hospital in Toronto will join us at 9.05. But Karima, let me start with you. Um, some people were observing on round one that if you've seen the photographs, they're very unsettling. But the story here is that this woman is 84 years old. She was left in the emergency room. She has dementia and she is deaf. And at some point she ended up in some form of, of an altercation with a security guard. Yeah, very um, shocking photos. And uh, it must be traumatizing for the family to have brought her in for medical care, only for her condition to be worsened. Um, and I do uh, understand from the article that there is training, de-escalation, etc., that the hospital refers to, um, but there has been so far a lack of transparency with the family. Um, and, you know, that that should concern us all. It's very unsettling. Although, Patrick Brown, it's kind of hard to de-escalate with somebody who is mentally altered by dementia and also happens to be deaf. It, it just can't get to the point that where someone's in a physical altercation where you have someone who's already vulnerable in a 
in a headlock. So just just horrifying. Um, so whatever happened here needs to be examined to make sure it doesn't get to that point again. Yeah, Jason, it's kind of hard to talk about corrective action or who's to blame when we still need to learn so much more about it. But it does. It just seems like one of those exemplars of what is wrong in our healthcare sector. Yes, it does. But this does need a lot more exploration. I have been in this situation with my grandmother who did have dementia uh, and with my grandfather who had Parkinson's uh, and myself and my mom were taking care of the two of them. So I have a lot of questions in regards to what went on here, because when there was two of us, if one of them was in the emergency room, we didn't leave them there because it is a source of fear and confusion. You're also dealing with a woman who is deaf and they know that and if you if you have all of the staff in masks how can they communicate at all to a person with dementia that is extremely frightening i'm not blaming the family here but i'm fully not blaming the emergency room who is not equipped to deal with this now granted this woman should not be in the emergency room she should have been transferred to another floor and another ward in order to get the proper care so yes when it comes down to it this is a problem with the medical system i am wondering why I know family member was with her there overnight, though, as well. We'll talk about it when her son joins us at 9.05. Uh, Toronto's police chief, uh, choosing his words very carefully yesterday, but effectively saying that if the budget is cut, then public safety is compromised. Uh, Jason, I'll come back to you first on this one. I mean, police unions and police chiefs are always going to want more money and more bodies. How do we make up our minds about how much they actually they actually need? That's a very tough call. Definitely not my specialty here, but the last thing that we want to hear is in a city that feels less and less safe every day. I mean, John, I, I went down to see a musical the other day at the Ed Mervish Theater, and I used to go to Ryerson when it was called Ryerson and never really feared walking around. I walked back to the parking lot, and there was just a string of people beside the Tim Hortons there, right beside Young Dundas Square, that were sitting there. Uh, they were they were full on needles out that we saw. They were smoking crack. And I'm just like, this city seems incredibly unsafe. So the last thing I as a resident want to hear is the police budget being money being taken away from it. Okay, Patrick Brown, this has to be a debate in your own community, just a different police force. Yeah, so our largest our largest budget increase in this year's budget was policing. You know, we added it was a fourteen percent increase, which was the largest of all time in our history, and partly because crime is becoming more complicated. And if it, what we're dealing with now with auto thefts and and human trafficking and extortions is a huge pressure. Um, on policing. One thing I explain to people who complain about the police budget request is, is one, it doesn't come from the chief, it comes from the board, which has civilian oversight and political appointments from both the city and the province. The second thing is, you may not know this, but there are more calls into 911 than officers able to respond. And so every day in Toronto and in Peel, the chief has to tier responses, which means there are criminal incidents happening every day in Toronto where there's no officer they can send to that incident. And so when you refer Fuse a police budget, it's really saying what level of service you're comfortable with, knowing there are crimes that will happen in the city that there's no one you can send to. Karima Sad, your thoughts? Uh, I think that, you know, the finite issue of budget and resources, there's always going to be disagreement about where that gets spent. Um, and the police force itself um, has to look at how effectively 
its money is being used. Ultimately, what makes our city safe and secure is people having access to housing, to medical care, um, to some of those underlying social determinants of crime. Um, and, you know, th- that isn't always, there's an article this week about how increasing budgets don't uh, correspond to increasing safety. Um, let's talk about uh, the world's first trillionaire who we're probably going to see in the next 10 years. And uh, Karima, is that a daunting notion to think of there being a trillionaire? And does it tell us anything about uh, wealth inequity? <laughs> yeah, it tells us very bad things. Um, and it's hard to even fathom the number trillion. Um, there's no ethical billionaires, in my view. So certainly there can be no ethical trillionaires. And uh, disparity in wealth is a, a huge marker of how stable or unstable uh, a particular society will be. And we're looking at this on a global level. Yeah, Patrick Brown, people are always going to get rich, and it's usually because they've been very successful at something. But after a while, the the sheer breadth of it becomes a little uh, overwhelming. Yeah, it certainly um, seems unfair. And part of the challenge, too, is, you know, as much as you, you know, I, I support the the, the market forces and, and let a good business person be a good business person. I think part of the challenge internationally is that you can have someone who's a trillionaire who essentially plays no tax because they will move to jurisdictions that, where, that, where they don't have to pay their fair contributions. So you sort of wish in a situation where there are a growing number of extremely wealthy individuals that there can be some agreements internationally that everyone has to contribute. And, and I think in the cases of trillionaires, they, they they would float their funds to a jurisdiction where there's no contribution required. Well, and Jason Agnew, quite frequently, like if you consider the family that owns Walmart, a considerable amount of their wealth is simply the money they won't pay to other people to work. Yeah, no doubt. that That's it. They're just not dispersing it back. Uh, and the rich get richer. I mean, it's just uh, a, a lot of that is what we're seeing here. And there's a larger and larger gap all the time. Okay, so this survey was the nicest accents in the world. And apparently the nicest one is American. And Patrick Brown, that kind of left me scratching my head since I could probably name 10 American accents off the top of my head. So what do they even mean? I don't know who does these surveys, but uh, yeah, that 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 seems on. Okay, uh, Karima Sad, do you have a favorite friendly accent? I had the same reaction to you because there are so many American accents, but I do love a Southern drawl. So yeah, uh, after a few drinks, my dad had that. Uh, Jason Agnew, your closing notes. I just enjoy the English accent, John, because it makes me think like I'm speaking with someone that is much smarter than I am. Always. And you know what? Growing up with Monty Python, I thought that all comedians had to have an English accent in order to be funny. Thank you all. Good to have you this morning. Jason Agnew, Karima Saad, and Patrick Brown. Catch the roundtable. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.